0: Lecture 2, What Amnesia Teaches Us About Learning. I'd like to begin this lecture with the story of a man who may have taught us more about learning and its neural substrates than anyone in history. His name was Henry Malayason. Now, Henry wasn't a famous psychologist or neuroscientist. He didn't design a critical experiment or write any influential articles or books. In fact, he wasn't a scientist at all. He was a neurological patient who suffered from profound amnesia. But studies of Henry, or patient HM, as he's known in the scientific literature, have radically changed our understanding of how learning works and how it's implemented in the brain. And in this lecture, we'll discuss what those studies have taught us about the learning brain. Henry was born in 1926, and he grew up near Hartford, Connecticut. When he was around seven years old, he was run over by a bicycle. He hit his head, and he was unconscious for a few minutes. Later on, he started experiencing epileptic seizures. Now at first, the seizures were manageable, but they grew worse and worse over time. When he was a senior in high school, his seizures were so bad that his high school principal asked him not to walk across the stage out of fear that he might have a seizure on stage. By the time he was 27, he was having about 10 seizures a day, and large doses of anticonvulsant medication weren't helping. He was therefore desperate to find an alternative treatment. And that's when a renowned neurosurgeon named William Scoville suggested that surgery might be worth a try. Now surgery might seem like a strange way to treat epilepsy, but it can often be effective when medications don't work. So think of epilepsy like kind of like an electrical storm that spreads through the brain, ultimately leading to a seizure. In most patients, the storm starts in a specific region of the brain. And if you can figure out where the storm is starting and surgically remove that small brain region, then it can often eliminate the seizures or at least significantly reduce them. The doctors therefore put electrodes on Henry's scalp and they recorded his brain waves. And they waited for a seizure in the hopes that they would be able to isolate the source. And sure enough, they found some brainwave abnormalities in the temporal lobes during one of his seizures. And based on these findings, they decided to perform an experimental surgery and remove some parts of his temporal lobes in the hope that doing so would help control his seizures. And it did. After the surgery, Henry only had about five minor seizures a month. Unfortunately, He also suffered a very serious side effect. He became profoundly amnesic. And as a result, that surgery has never been performed again. Here's a quote from Henry himself, describing what it was like for him after the surgery. Right now, I'm wondering, have I done or said anything amiss? You see, at this moment, everything looks unclear to me. But what happened just before, that's what worries me. It's like waking from a dream I just don't remember. Every day is alone in itself, whatever enjoyment I've had and whatever sorrow I've had. Now, when many people think of amnesia, they imagine a person who no longer remembers their family and friends or even who they are and where they grew up. That's the way amnesia is often portrayed in soap operas and movies. But that's not the way it is for the vast majority of people who have developed amnesia as a result of brain damage. And it's not the way it was for Henry. Henry still remembered who he was and where he grew up. He remembered his family and his childhood friends. He had detailed memories of actors and musicians who were popular when he was a kid. He also remembered many specific events from his childhood, including the bicycle accident that may have led to his seizures. He could even name and tell you about the friends he had in second grade. But Henry did have trouble remembering events that occurred right before the surgery. In fact, he remembered almost no events from the two years preceding the surgery. And his memory for the nine years before that was also very impaired. This kind of memory impairment is typically called retrograde amnesia. Now, the term retrograde simply refers to when the forgotten events occurred. In retrograde amnesia, the forgotten events occurred before the brain damage. In Henry's case, his retrograde amnesia exhibited a temporal gradient. That is, his older childhood memories were intact but later memories from the years immediately preceding his surgery were impaired. This pattern is actually very common in amnesia. So common, in fact, that it is sometimes called Ribot's Law, after the French psychologist Théodule Armand Ribot, who first recognized the pattern. Okay, so Henry suffered from a retrograde amnesia meaning he had difficulty remembering information from before his surgery. And that retrograde amnesia was temporally graded, referring to the fact that more recent memories were more impaired than older childhood memories, which were relatively preserved. But Henry's most significant deficit wasn't in remembering. It was actually in learning. After his surgery, Henry's ability to learn new information was catastrophically impaired, even if that information was encountered over and over again on an almost daily basis. For example, he was unable to learn the names and faces of the doctors and nurses who took care of him every day. In fact, he typically didn't even recognize them, and so they would introduce themselves day after day, despite working with him for years. And this was true for all the new people he encountered. He could spend hours with a person, engaging in detailed conversations, participating in scientific tests, or sharing a meal. But five minutes after their departure, he would typically have no memory for the person or the encounter. And if they came back to visit, Henry would introduce himself and act as if they had never met before. Because as far as he was concerned, they hadn't. Now this kind of impairment in learning new information and laying down new memories is often called anterograde amnesia. In anterograde amnesia, the forgotten events occurred after the brain injury, whereas in retrograde amnesia, the forgotten events occurred before. Like Henry, most patients with amnesia have both a temporally graded retrograde amnesia and an anterograde amnesia. And Henry's anterograde amnesia even included difficulty learning traumatic information. As we'll discuss in depth later in this course, people typically have stronger, more vivid memories for traumatic, stressful events than for more mundane events. But Henry's memories for traumatic events were also dramatically impaired. For example, After his operation in 1953, Henry lived with his parents. His father died in 1967, and his mother died in 1981. Henry then lived in a nursing home. But years later, when asked where he lived, he would typically say that he lived in a house with his mother. And when asked if his father was still alive, he would often say that he wasn't sure even though his father had died over 20 years earlier. He would sometimes write himself a note as a reminder of his dad's death in an attempt to avoid forgetting this intensely personal memory. Okay, well, so far we've focused on Henry's deficits, specifically on his debilitating anterograde amnesia and his temporally graded retrograde amnesia. But it turns out, that many other aspects of learning and memory were actually preserved in Henry. And it was the specific pattern of spared versus impaired functions that taught scientists the most about human learning. So next, let's turn to what Henry could still do, and in particular, what he could still learn. One of the first discoveries was made by Dr. Brenda Milner, who did most of the early research on Henry. Dr. Milner asked him to trace drawings while looking at a mirror rather than directly at the paper itself. So left and right were reversed, and so were up and down. To get a sense for how hard this is, let's do a little demo. So let me invite you to pause the recording while you get yourself a piece of paper, a pen, and a mirror. Go ahead and pause. Now, first of all, Just draw a simple geometric figure, like a five-pointed star on the paper. Don't use the mirror yet. Just draw the star on the paper like you normally would. Okay, now I want you to try to trace the star that you just drew, but looking at it using the mirror rather than looking at the paper itself. Go ahead and pause the recording while you give it a shot. Okay, I think we can probably agree that mirror tracing is pretty hard. Well, that's what Dr. Milner asked Henry to do. And he was just as bad at it as you would expect. Well, at least he was at first. But Dr. Milner let him practice this task over and over for three days. And he eventually got to the point where he could trace the figure quickly and accurately. He got good at it. What's the big deal? After all, if you practiced mirror tracing for three straight days, you'd get pretty good at it, too. No, we're not going to do that demo. But here's the thing. Henry's mirror tracing performance was obviously changing as a result of his experience. He got better and better at the task the more he practiced. In other words, he was learning. This same guy who couldn't learn the names and faces of the doctors and nurses that he saw every day for years was learning to trace drawings in a mirror after only a few days. Here's another interesting tidbit. When Dr. Milner returned for the second and third day of training, Henry didn't remember having ever done the task before. He was much better at it than he was the previous day, but his learning was all unconscious. Dr. Milner had to explain the task to him again, as if he had never done it before. And, of course, she also had to introduce herself every time she came in, because Henry had no memory of her either. But despite having no conscious memory of the task, Henry was still much better at performing it than he was the previous day. Apparently, learning a motor skill is fundamentally different than learning a person's name or other conscious facts. And it turns out it's not just motor skill learning that is preserved in amnesia. For example, in 1980, Neil Cohen and Larry Squire at the University of California at San Diego investigated the ability of amnesics to learn a perceptual skill in which they had to learn to recognize unfamiliar visual stimuli. Specifically, they asked them to read mirror-reversed text as fast as they could As in Dr. Milner's study, the participants practiced the skill for three straight days, and a group of non-amnesic control subjects practiced the same task. Sure enough, the amnesics improved at reading mirror-reversed text the more that they practiced. In fact, they learned just as quickly as the normal control subjects did. Furthermore, they were still good at it three months later. So, not only did the amnesics learn to perform this skill, they also had retained this newly acquired ability. And, like HM, the amnesics in this study learned this perceptual skill even though they didn't consciously remember having done the task before. The bottom line is that amnesics can learn perceptual and motor skills just like everyone else. Although they may not consciously remember ever having performed the task before, their performance continues to improve with additional practice. Another way of putting it is in terms of knowing how versus knowing that. Amnesics can learn how to perform a skill even when they don't know that they've ever practiced it before. Now, inspired by these early findings, several scientists started looking for other types of learning and memory that were preserved in amnesia. And they found some. For example, another type of learning that's spared in amnesia is called priming. So what is priming, exactly? Well, priming occurs when previous exposure to a stimulus facilitates your processing of similar stimuli in the future. For example, suppose you're reading a magazine and you see a picture of a celebrity that you know, but maybe it takes you a minute to recognize the person. Well, if you see a picture of that same celebrity a few minutes later, you'll probably recognize them faster than you did the first time. That's priming. Previous exposure to the celebrity's picture primes you, and makes you a little faster to recognize that person the next time. Priming is another type of unconscious learning. Remember, learning occurs anytime your knowledge or behavior changes as a result of previous experience. So if you get faster at recognizing a picture because of your previous experience seeing that picture, that's learning. It's unconscious learning, but it's still learning. And so priming is another kind of learning. And it also happens to be preserved in amnesia. In one famous study, Carolyn Cave and Larry Squire showed line drawings of familiar objects to 11 amnesics and nine age-matched and education-matched control subjects. The drawings might be of anything from a guitar to a pair of glasses to a hammer. And the participants were simply asked to name the object as fast as they could. The participants came back two days later, as well as a week later, and they did the same task again. But now, half the pictures were repeats from the first test, while the other half were new. And Cave and Squire then compared the time it took to name new pictures versus the time it took to name the repeated pictures. Specifically, They measured how much faster people were at naming the repeated pictures relative to the new pictures. And that was their measure of priming. And what they found was very interesting. First, the amnesics exhibited a very clear priming effect. Specifically, they were a little bit faster when naming pictures that they had seen before compared with pictures that were new. In fact, the size of the priming effect in the amnesics was, if anything, slightly larger than it was in the healthy control subjects. Second, even though the amnesics were unconsciously learning from their previous experience with the pictures, their conscious memory for the pictures was significantly impaired. When asked to guess whether they had seen each picture before, the control subjects were right between 75 and 80 percent of the time. In contrast, the amnesics were only slightly better than chance. The take-home message is that amnesics exhibit normal priming effects that last at least a week, even though their conscious memory is dramatically impaired. That's just like what we saw with skill learning. But the psychologists did not stop there. In 1995, John Gabrielli, who was at Stanford at the time, along with a number of his colleagues, investigated whether amnesics also exhibit intact classical conditioning, or Pavlovian conditioning, as it's sometimes called. Now, you may have heard of Ivan Pavlov and his famous experiment with dogs. Well, Pavlovian conditioning is named after him. And we'll dive into conditioning in a lot more detail later in the course. But here's a quick and dirty version. Pavlov was measuring how much his dogs salivated. Now, as you would expect, the dogs salivated a lot when Pavlov got their food out. But quite by accident, he noticed that they also started salivating as soon as he entered the room, even if he didn't have any food with him. And he hypothesized that the dogs had learned that they were likely to be fed soon after he came in, and so they were anticipating the food even before it arrived. He began to investigate the phenomenon systematically, and he discovered that if he consistently paired the sound of a bell with the presentation of food, then pretty soon the dogs would learn an unconscious association between the bell and the food. In particular, they would salivate whenever they heard the bell, even if there wasn't any food. Well, that's Pavlovian, or classical conditioning. And it's another example of behavior being changed as a result of previous experience. So in other words, classical conditioning is another type of learning. So, can amnesics learn these kinds of conditioned associations too? Well, to find out, Gabrielli and his colleagues recruited seven amnesics and seven healthy controls and tested them using an eye blink conditioning paradigm. Now, instead of measuring salivation, they measured eye blinks. They repeatedly paired the sound of a tone with a puff of air directed at the subject's eyes. Now, as you would expect, the air puff led people to blink their eyes. The question is, what happens when you present the tone by itself without the air puff? If people have learned an association between the tone and the air puff, then you might expect them to blink. And sure enough, they did. And it wasn't just the healthy control subjects who blinked in response to the tone. So did the amnesics. Even though their conscious memory was dramatically impaired, and they might not remember hearing the tone before, nevertheless, the amnesics learned an unconscious association that led them to blink when the tone was presented. So, just like skill learning, just like priming, Classical conditioning is preserved in amnesia. Now, together, these results radically changed our understanding of learning and how it's implemented in the brain. At the most general level, they conclusively demonstrate that human beings use multiple different learning systems depending on what they're learning. In particular, learning unconscious information is fundamentally different than learning conscious information. And it even depends on different parts of the brain after all amnesia clearly shows that brain damage that dramatically impairs conscious memories can leave unconscious memories intact now psychologists often refer to conscious memories as explicit and they refer to unconscious memories as implicit so Explicit memories are memories that you can consciously bring to mind and describe verbally. They're also sometimes called declarative memories because you can declare them or verbalize them. And when most people think of learning and memory, they're probably thinking of explicit learning and memory. Remembering what you ate for lunch or where you went on your last vacation. Remembering that two plus two equals four. Those are all examples of explicit memories. Most of the learning that you do when you're listening to a great course would also be explicit. You can consciously bring the information that you learned to mind and describe it verbally. And these are the kinds of memories that amnesics have difficulty learning. In contrast, implicit memories are memories that you can't consciously recall but that nevertheless influence your subsequent behavior. Think of your memory for how to ride a bike. Once you've learned to ride a bike, you really don't have to think about how to do it, right? You just get on the bike and your mind and body take over. You can think about other things or hold a conversation while you're riding your bike. It's an automatic, implicit memory. And the same is true for priming and for conditioning you'll be faster at naming a picture you've seen before, even if you don't consciously think about the time you saw it before. In fact, given how fast you can name a picture, there isn't time to consciously remember the previous exposure. The previous experience primes you to recognize the picture a little faster, and that process is implicit rather than explicit. Likewise, after being conditioned to blink in response to a tone, That association is implicit, and it doesn't depend on any conscious memory of the training. And amnesics typically don't have trouble learning those kinds of implicit memories. Now, the take-home message is simple, but it's important. Learning explicit information is fundamentally different than learning implicit information. The two types of learning depend on completely different cognitive and neural mechanisms. Next, I want to turn to another aspect of learning and memory that was spared in Henry, namely, working memory. Working memory refers to the ability to store, rehearse, and manipulate information temporarily. And for the purposes of this course, we'll consider working memory to be synonymous with short-term memory. I prefer the term working memory because it conveys the idea that we actively work with the information in this memory system rather than just passively storing information away temporarily. For example, when you're doing arithmetic in your head, you're not just storing intermediate results and then retrieving those results a few seconds later. You're also working with that information. You're adding numbers together, carrying a digit from one column to the next, rehearsing information to refresh it, and so on. That's working memory a temporary memory system that we actively use to help us solve problems and achieve our goals. Well, Henry's working memory was fine. He could temporarily store information. He could rehearse it and manipulate it in all the same ways that you and I do. He could hold a normal conversation and keep track of what was just said or what he was just asked. He could solve problems that required storing information away temporarily and then retrieving it a few seconds later. In fact, his intelligence as measured by traditional IQ tests was in the normal range. He also performed normally on more formal tests of working memory, like the so-called digit span task. In this task, people are given a sequence of random digits and asked them to repeat them back in order. Henry could typically remember about six digits, which is within the normal range. Jenny Ogden, who did a lot of work with Henry, described a time that Henry was given five digits to remember. But before he was asked to recall them, the experimenter got called away. And when she finally returned over an hour later, Henry immediately repeated back the five digits. He had been rehearsing them that entire time that the experimenter was out of the room. And as that story makes very clear, Henry's working memory was very much intact, despite his profound deficit in storing explicit information into long-term memory. Okay, so we've learned a lot about Henry and amnesia. And perhaps the single most important point to take away is that human learning is not a unitary process. We have multiple learning systems that are quite different from each other and that depend on different brain systems. Explicit learning is quite different from implicit learning. Likewise, storing information in long-term memory depends on different cognitive and neural mechanisms than does storing information in working memory. And these facts have important implications for you and me if we want to optimize our own learning. In particular, we shouldn't expect strategies that optimize explicit learning to be effective when learning implicit information. For example, strategies that are very effective when you're learning U.S. history might not be the best strategies to use when you're learning to play golf. And strategies that optimize learning to play the piano might not be the best way to learn the state capitals. If we really want to optimize our learning, then we'll want to take a different approach. We'll want to tailor our learning strategies depending on the kind of information that we're trying to learn. But doing so will require understanding how these different learning systems work at a mechanistic level. And that's what we'll do in this course. We'll discuss explicit learning, implicit learning, and working memory in three separate sections of the course. And for each topic, we'll dive into what psychologists have learned about the cognitive processes involved, as well as what neuroscientists have learned about the underlying neural mechanisms. And once that groundwork has been laid, we'll turn to research examining how to optimize learning in each domain. We'll also devote a fourth section of the course to discussing factors such as sleep, emotions, and aging that have been shown to have a significant impact on the effectiveness of our learning. See you next time.